You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. An RCMP officer was injured and a suspect shot in a bizarre series of events partly captured on video outside the Duncan RCMP detachment. As Amada Gahi reports, the RCMP and IIO are both investigating the incident and a warning some of the images in this story might be disturbing. The video does not tell the entire story. What it does show is an RCMP officer making a split-second decision to fire at a suspect from close range, and that suspect instantly collapsing to the ground. The incident recorded by a witness in a nearby apartment building. I heard a big bang, and I sat up, went to my porch, and I seen the cop car in the ditch. According to RCMP, at about 6.30 Friday morning, an officer was doing a check-in on a police cruiser in the parking lot of the Duncan RCMP detachment when a man drove into the employee lot and crashed into the police vehicle head-on, pushing it into a ditch and injuring the officer. And as I started recording it, the cop came around the corner and he'd seen the guy twist and felt threatened or something and decided to let a shot off. A written statement from the RCMP says a second officer fired at the vehicle, striking the driver. But the video shows the suspect was on foot, appearing to reach into the back seat of his vehicle before being shot by police. After they got him in cuffs and in the ambulance, they dealt with the officer in the ditch because I think it was, wasn't as bad as they were thinking it was. It was just in the heat of the moment. He wasn't feeling the best. The RCMP would not comment on camera Friday. Meanwhile, both the suspect and the injured RCMP officer were taken to hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. Emadagahi, Global News. A Kamloops man has been arrested and charged with murder in an unusual case that began more than a year ago. On March 17th last year, the body of Thompson Rivers University instructor Maud Abdullah was found inside a vehicle outside of Kamloops' home three days after he'd been reported missing. Soon after, Rogelio Butch Bagabuyo was arrested and charged with indignity to a body. But this morning, he was arrested again and has now been charged with first-degree murder in Abdullah's death. The family of a Vancouver Island man is demanding answers and accountability from Island Health tonight after he was discharged from hospital and took his own life. Kylie Stanton reports. Oh, I love this one. Photos fill these pages, but there's an emptiness here that can't be ignored. You know, my brother was very much a gentle soul. Um, he loved being outdoors, he loved hiking, loved dogs. James Zimmer also had a family who loved him in the good times. He started having this desire to help others. But also the bad. There had been numerous um, suicide attempts. It wasn't just a... Um, a thought like he actually had articulated plans. On February 7th of this year, the sisters and their mother took Zimmer to get help. The 50-year-old was readmitted to psychiatric emergency services at Royal Jubilee Hospital. I said, please, can I be called before he's discharged? And she had agreed, as long as James was okay with it, that I could get a call. And he said yes. Zimmer stayed the night, but by lunchtime the following day, he was discharged. And according to the family, 
No call was made. A few hours later, he returned and was readmitted, and on February 9th, discharged again. And there was no call to family. There was no family collateral. It would be another day before the family figured out what was happening. It was probably within about a half an hour of realizing that he had been discharged. We had a police officer come to the door and uh, inform me that somebody had found him. Do you think a phone call would have saved your brother's life? Absolutely. And I think it's negligent to have not made that call. According to the Mental Health Act, notice must be given to a near relative of an involuntary patient immediately after discharging. But it's clear in Zimmer's case that was not followed. These are people's lives and I find it frankly shocking and beyond disturbing that the government has not done more. We have a, a system now of um, uh, auditing compliance of the process that designated uh, mental health facilities undergo. This is clearly a terrible tragedy. My condolences go to the family. But the family says the issue in Zimmer's case is the gray area. According to Island Health, patients assessed as having the capability to make decisions have the right to change their consent. This includes consent about alerting family about their discharge. They created the crack that my brother fell into, and I just do not want this to happen to anybody else. And so they're calling for real change. Nothing will bring their brother back, but finding purpose in his tragic death may start to fill the void he's left behind. All we can do is fight for those that are left um, because my brother never got that chance and he could still in some way help other people the way he wanted to just days before he died. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. And if you or someone you know needs help, you can call Talk Suicide Canada at 1-833-456-4566. Again, support is available 24 hours a day every day of the year. After a forensic audit put Atira Women's Resource Society into the spotlight this week, the largest social housing operator in BC says it's launching its own review. Keith Baldry joins us now with more on this. And Keith, Atira says it's putting together a task force. Yes, in stark contrast to its first response to the Ernst & Young uh, forensic audit and the request from BC Housing for changes, uh, today Atira announcing they are uh, appointing a task force, an internal task force made up of the board chair and the chair of the governance and finance committees, and they will oversee a third-party review of Atira's policies and practices, including what it does when it comes to potential uh, conflict of interest. So again, this is a significant move by Atira, at least a move away from its open position, which was basically nothing to see here, and ignoring BC Housing. Also, the Atira disclosing today, they are uh, granting one of BC Housing's key requests, and that is returning $1.9 million for the previous two fiscal years, which were surplus funds. So those have been sent to BC Housing. So there's a bit of movement here from Atira when the first response, again, was basically nothing to see here. Mm -hmm. And potentially even more fallout, Keith, we hear the former CEO of BC Housing, Shane Ramsey, mm -hmm. is now now out at Squamish Nation's Niche K Development Corporation, which he joined after he left BC Housing. Yes, Shane Ramsey had been the uh, executive vice president for this company that's responsible for the huge development at the south end of the Burrard Bridge, a massive development that will generate up to $10 billion in shared revenue for the Squamish First Nations van. We caught up with Housing Minister Ravi Kalon today. He says really they can't get involved in what other private companies do when it comes to personnel decisions.
Well, uh, I'll leave uh, decisions uh, from another organization and another from the First Nations uh, to speak for itself. Um, uh, certainly the forensic investigation highlighted some real concerns, uh, but we can't really speak to decisions made by other organizations. So again, this story continues. We don't know yet what's going to happen to Janice Abbott, the CEO of Atir, and of course Shane Ramsey's wife. She remains the CEO. There was no mention of her in the news release announcing this task force from Atir. And there's no timeline given here either, Chris. We don't know how long this, this uh, third-party review is going to take or what ultimately it's going to find. Mm, more developments down the road for sure. Thanks very much, Keith. A follow-up now to a story we reported on Thursday that prescribed safe supply drugs intended for fentanyl addicts aren't making the streets any safer. And in fact, Global's Paul Johnson ventured onto the downtown east side to test claims that prescribed hydromorphone is easily available on the street. With controversy raging in Victoria over the extent to which doctor-prescribed opioids are being diverted into the street trade, we hit the streets of Vancouver Friday to find out what was really happening. We overheard drug dealers shouting, Dillies, the slang word for Dilaudid or Hydromorphone, which is one of the drugs the government has encouraged doctors to prescribe as safe supply to those suffering from addiction. In addition to sellers, we had a lot of people ask us if we had dillies, appearing to indicate an open and robust aftermarket for the powerful opioid. So here's what happened. It took us about half an hour on East Hastings Street, and we were able to buy 26 tablets. We're told this is hydromorphone, also known as dillies, also known as Dilaudid. A lab later confirmed the pills were, in fact, hydromorphone. Some were still in the package, which doctors say looks like government safe supply pills. Total price, $30, a little more than a buck a pill. The government at that time actually said that we were fear-mongering and that this wasn't happening. BC United MLA Eleanor Sturko says our lunchtime score is evidence the program is in trouble, that many fentanyl users are clearly trading or selling the pills, putting other people at risk of addiction and overdose. When you start seeing a harmful drug circulating and this easy to obtain, this easy to obtain, that there is insufficient safety measures in place. But others say it's too soon to write off the program. The Ministry of Mental Health and Addiction said Friday that the safe supply program is working and that the vast majority of it is not diverted. An addiction survivor, Guy Felicella, said lives have undoubtedly been saved because of it. The opposition has blown it out of proportion to think that we've just handed out drugs to everybody for free. That is not the case. As for the drugs we bought, we dropped them at the police department for safe disposal. In East Van, Paul Johnson, Global News. Vancouver's historic Chinatown neighborhood is getting another big boost. The province announcing this afternoon it's committing another $2.2 million dollars for the revitalization of Chinatown. The funding goes to the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation for the restoration of storefronts and some of those historic neon signs. The hope is those improvements will help bring the community back to life as it continues to face challenges with crime that were only made worse during the pandemic. This historic investment of 2.2 million by Premier Eby, Minister Popham and the BC government is a new beginning for Vancouver's Chinatown and will open the door for renewed economic vitality.
But this is only the beginning. We still have a long way to go and so many things we need to achieve to make Chinatown the jewel that it can be once again. The funding will also help upgrade the facade of the Chinese Cultural Center. Well, someone steals a lot more than bases at Coquitlam Little League Baseball. Police investigate after $150,000 goes missing and they discover it appears to have been an inside job. The one-time treasurer now facing charges next on the news hour. This park is very well used. It'll be very appreciated this weekend. How to counter weekend warming. Unusually hot weather prompts some cities to offer splash park relief a lot earlier than usual. That's later. Plus, a possible solution to those screeching SkyTrain tracks coming up later as well. Right now, though, charges of fraud and theft have been laid against the former treasurer of the Coquitlam Little League, accused of stealing $150,000 from the organization. As Janet Brown reports, the investigation was launched back in the summer of 2020 when they noticed the money was missing. We believe! We believe! Coquitlam we Little believe. League is reeling after charges of fraud and theft over $5,000 were laid against the association's former treasurer after $150,000 disappeared. We're talking about children uh, that just want to play sports and the financial impact to the organization for parents was felt then and is still felt now. 65-year-old Terry Michael worked as the Little League's treasurer from 2014 to 2020. Good morning. Hi, Hello. I'm Janet Brown from Global News Hello. and we are coming to speak to Terry if she is home regarding the charges and if she would like to chat with us about that. Um, she's got no comment and we're not interested in speaking to the media. At Mackinpart, Little League fans say they feel betrayed after hearing about the charges. Little League is for the kids, right, to have fun and, uh, you know, they need all the support they can get. In a community, you want to feel kind of safe and you want to feel like you can count on everyone around you and that's just unfortunate when you find out that someone, and I'm sure it's someone that everyone trusted. I wonder a little bit about uh, what checks and balances are, are in place that, um, that might allow for some better oversight to avoid that in the future. Coquitlam Little League has issued a statement that says in part, we are thankful a conclusion to the RCMP investigation has been reached. This conclusion will help continue to heal and move forward from the incident. Coquitlam BC, you're going to the Little League World Series. Charges resulted after an investigation spanning two and a half years. Because of the amount of evidence that needs to be collected, we're talking bank records, statements, obtaining the proper warrants and judicial authorizations throughout the investigation does take time. Michael has been released and will be appearing in court later this month. Janet Brown, Global News. A new report on evictions in B.C. billed as the first of its kind paints a pretty bleak picture of the rental market. As Julie Nolan reports, one of the most shocking findings is the number of people who say they ended up homeless after being evicted. It was a really traumatizing experience. All of a sudden, within one day, we're out. Belongings put onto the driveway and no reason given by the landlord for being evicted from a rental in Surrey in January. Um, until now, I'm unable to find a permanent place to live. 
I found my stuff on the street. As a construction management student at BCIT, Nadim Saleh was lucky to find temporary housing at the school. Like an undetermined number of British Columbians who are renters, it's a tale that's becoming far too common. I think what's most upsetting to me is um, the fact that I think a lot of this could be prevented. In a first for the province, a study has been conducted on the nature of evictions as a mapping tool to shape future tenant legislation and protection. Because BC does not have a way to track evictions or even review if the landlord had a right to force a tenant out, this study recruited participants from all over BC. For a majority of evictions, there's just no contact with a government agency, and that means that we don't know about most evictions in BC. More than one quarter of tenants end up homeless after eviction. Among people who face eviction, it's 31 percent. 34 percent of people with disabilities said they couldn't find a new home. And hardest hit, 45 percent of Indigenous people said they hadn't found a new place to live. A lot of these evictions would be preventable if if we required evidence up front. And the cost is just so high for people when they get evicted. BC's housing minister won't say if the province would create a database or a review of all evictions, but... The changes we made now means a lot less run evictions, but we have more work to do, and that's what we'll be doing in the coming months. For Soleil, his temporary student housing runs out next month. As both disabled and an immigrant, he knows the hunt for housing won't be easy. The housing market is very hard. It's, uh, it's becoming more scarce and it's getting harder to get the place. And with rents on the rise, Saleh is hoping something will come together for his last year of studies. Julie Nolan, Global News. Coming up, charges in a heartbreaking human trafficking case. A family found frozen to death near the Manitoba-U.S. border and how the case has a connection to Vancouver. Also later, the delicate balance between enjoying the heat and not being overwhelmed by it. Good evening. Uh, dealing with a minor accident here in Burnaby. It's eastbound on Marine Way, uh, just before the Queensboro Bridge. The left lane is blocked, a bit of a bottleneck effect through here. Today's Lotto Max jackpot is an estimated $33 million. Lotto Max, dream to the max. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One. I above a crash in Burnaby. New developments in a tragedy we now know has a B.C. connection. In January of 2022, a family of four, a mother, a father and their two children, only 11 and 3 years old, were found frozen to death in southern Manitoba while they were attempting to cross the border into the U.S. As Catherine Urquhart reports, authorities in India are reportedly trying to extradite two Vancouverites for their alleged role in the deaths. They were all found frozen to death near Emerson, Manitoba in January 2022. Jagdish Patel, his wife, Vishalaben, 11-year-old Vihanji, and 3-year-old Darmik died while attempting to cross into the United States. All victims were located approximately 9 to 12 meters from the border. And at this very early stage of the investigation, it appears that they all died due to exposure to cold weather. Now Indian authorities are reportedly trying to extradite two Vancouverites for their roles in the deaths. This is highly unusual. Rare is 
India requesting extradition, rarer still for smuggling and her human trafficking, uh, that's going to be a legal precedent. Vancouver residents Fanil Patel and Bita Singh, who also goes by B2 Paji, face charges in India. It's alleged they helped plan the crossing into the U.S. Three people in India have already been charged with human trafficking and homicide offenses related to the deaths, believed to be part of a much larger human smuggling operation. Extradition of the Vancouverites could be lengthy. Extradition can be delayed literally for years, including appeals, even a Supreme Court of Canada journey. On the other hand, if the wallet is thin and you can't afford that lawyer, you're talking days, if not weeks. Manitoba RCMP aren't commenting on the development. Neither is the Department of Justice. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Coming up, testing a new tool to fight breast cancer, a simple blood test, and how it could be a game changer just ahead. Plus, our commitment at TransLink is absolutely to do what we can to reduce uh, that noise. How the feds are chipping in to solve the infamous SkyTrain scream. Good evening. Counterflow is out over here at the Massey Tunnel and traffic is moving well north and south. Just some volume on the Steveston off-ramp from northbound Highway 99. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. Kermac is celebrating 50 years of collision and auto glass services. Choose the best. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. The federal government and TransLink are investing tens of millions of dollars for upgrades to Metro Vancouver SkyTrain. The funding announcement comes just a day after we told you about a loud, unpleasant screeching noise that riders say drown out almost all other sound along stretches of the Expo line. Travis Prasad tells us how the new funding should help quiet things down. For some, that three-tone chime is no longer the signature sound of SkyTrain. Instead, it's this. Loud rattling as train cars trek along the almost 40-year-old system. At Edmund Sky Train Station in Burnaby, all that noise is grinding the gears of people who live nearby. It's the metal-on-metal metal sound that's, that's bad. Ideally, if they could switch out the tires for rubber or something like that, some different kind of material. As with any system, with complex infrastructure needs, there are challenges that have to be addressed uh, from time to time. One of those challenges, according to TransLink CEO Kevin Quinn, is aging rails on the Expo line. Work is now underway to replace 20 kilometers of running rails and 24,000 rail pads. Uh, this rail replacement is using a rail with a harder steel, which can uh, reduce that noise as well. Uh, we can, we've, uh, we're focused on our switches, so as trains are switching from one track to another, that's also a piece that can reduce the noise. The federal government is paying for half of the $35 million project. Some of the new rails are on site at TransLink's operations center in Burnaby. Work has already started at Commercial Broadway Station. Other noisy stretches will follow. And this funding from the federal government is for the next three phases of rail replacement, specifically between Royal Oak and Edmonds Station. 
between Joyce Collingwood and Patterson and between Edmonds and 22nd. So it's really done kind of in phases. The work is part of TransLink's 2018 investment plan. The Transit Authority heard from an independent consultant on ways to mitigate noise throughout the system. Just depends. If you're close by, it's going to be pretty noisy, but if you're, depends how close you are to the station. Replacement work is expected to take four years, wrapping up in 2027, meaning it could be some time before all that excessive noise is brought to a screeching halt. Travis Prasad, Global News. In Health Matters tonight, time, of course, is at the essence for patients battling cancer. And a new trial in Kingston, Ontario, is improving the outcomes for stage 4 breast cancer patients using blood tests to quickly monitor the effectiveness of treatment. Aaron Strickland reports. A simple blood test is improving the treatment of women with metastatic breast cancer patients in Kingston. M-Detect, a company started out of the Queen's University Cancer Research Institute in Kingston, has developed a blood test to accurately measure if a tumor is shrinking or continuing to grow, indicating whether or not the current therapy is working. We're hoping that you know this would help extend their lives, but also to help improve their quality of life. The blood test works by identifying tumor cell DNA that is shed in the patient's bloodstream. It requires one tube of blood drawn every one or two weeks. And so by detecting that very sensitively, we can say, you know, is the tumor present? How much of it is present in the body? For women with metastatic breast cancer, the disease can spread to other organs, making it crucial to determine whether a treatment is working quickly. CT scans are currently used to monitor treatment, but results often take months to get back. Using blood work through M-Detect's test takes four to five days and will let oncologists know if the cancer is responding to a treatment within a month. The series of blood tests that we have can impact 10 million people across North America, and that's a really large number that, you know, patients potentially that we could help with our tests. M-Detect launched a clinical study in April and is currently recruiting 150 metastatic breast cancer patients to participate through Kingston General Hospital and Ottawa General Hospital. The next step will be Health Canada and FDA approval with the goal to be in the market within three years when they hope their simple blood test can become an important tool in the fight against breast cancer. Aaron Strickland, Global News, Kingston. Up next, in an overheated real estate market, it could be the deal of the century where this house is being offered for free and why there's a catch you should consider first. And in sports, cultivating wins for the Whitecaps how the team is growing its own talent. BC's big news. The 2023 Canadian Screen Awards have named Global News Hour at 6 the country's best local newscast. Thank you, BC, for making Global News Hour at 6 your choice for news. British Columbians are about to experience the first hot weekend of the year with temperatures expected to soar 10 to 15 degrees above normal, well above 30 in some areas. It's not classified as a heat dome, but people are being warned to take precautions to protect themselves and their loved ones. Richard Zussman has a look at what some people are doing to prepare. Five. On. Turning on the jets. All you have to do is press the button. British Columbia bracing for the first blast of heat, meaning in many municipalities, the splash parks are being turned on earlier than normal. I'm running into my July start and end times because the kids are just going to fill this place up. Temperatures forecast to be significantly higher than seasonal, triggering a heat alert. 
but not on the range of a heat emergency, similar to the 2021 heat dome. What makes this wave challenging is how early in the season it is. Very anomalous. It's going to feel extremely hot for most of us who haven't seen really any heat unless we were down in Mexico recently. While getting wet may work for some, it won't solve all the challenges, especially for those that are at highest risk of heat-related illness. In that case, you should remain indoors, considering this heat wave may stick around for a while. It is important to buddy up with people that you know that are going to be susceptible and make sure they're hydrated, make sure they find a place that they can cool off. One reprieve is overnight temperatures will be much closer to normal. Even so, there's been a run on air conditioners and fans. They want to be prepared, just in case it does get really hot. With all those precautions under consideration, the first spike on the thermometer appreciated by many. Seeing April's grays replaced by May's rays. I would say it is the perfect weather. It's super nice. I feel like it came out of nowhere and not, not sure if it might leave again. So we're just trying to make the most of it. The sun's shining. You got to take advantage of it. And hopefully there's more to come. The more to come is enough for experts to call this a dress rehearsal with similar heat waves likely to come back throughout the summer. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. I've always said it, Zussman is so cool. And now it's <laughs> absolutely true. Uh, a lot of people will be looking for uh, some cool down effect from this weather. It's going to be uh, pretty hot, Yvonne. Yeah, and he said dress rehearsal, even an appetizer for summer. But yeah, the heat, big weather story, and this will take us into early next week. Uh, even for Mother's Day, keep that in mind if you're making plans for mom as well. We're sitting at 23. We've got a few clouds in the mix out there, a few spots in towards the interior today. A look at some of the highs. We did get closer to 30 degrees near Kamloops, the southern regions of the Okanagan, and Lytton as well and we'll be into the low 30s. That special weather statement continues to blanket the province, extending in towards the southeastern corners, and the numbers that we're looking at, especially for the Thompson and Nicola, will be closer to 36 degrees. Most areas will remain into the low 30s, and that takes us towards Monday, Tuesday for the interior, and then likely a bit of a reprieve later on in the week, but we are going to see an increase and acceleration in the snowmelt with these temperatures, areas near Cache Creek underneath the flood warning. Middle Fraser, Quinnell River, as well as the Salmon River underneath the flood watch that may exceed bankful in all areas in yellow underneath the high stream flow advisory. Ways to stay safe uh, during the hot weekend, stay cool and hydrated, check in with others, rivers will be flowing fast, the UV index will be very high, so stay hydrated, lather on the sunscreen, and we'll be monitoring the air quality health index as well. Now, the northern half of the province, that's the one area that we're seeing a blip in the forecast. We've got rainfall, it'll ease off, drying out with some sunshine by Sunday. Central, southern interior, the heat is on in the coming days. It'll likely take us in towards Tuesday, Wednesday. Most areas along the south coast, that special weather statement extends all the way in towards our Tuesday. Away from the water, factor in the Humidex, it is going to be hot. For Mother's Day, away from the water up to 34 degrees. Monday, Tuesday, still closer to 30 degrees. All right, tonight's weather window, this one was captured in Clinton by Amanda. Chris? Beautiful shot. And we're going to get lots more blue sky and sunshine, <laughs> it sounds like. Hope you uh, enjoy it. Listen, if you can't find an affordable home, an Enderby property owner is giving one away. The only ask is that the new owners move the home to a different location. The historic home has attracted attention from all over the Okanagan. The sign went up and uh, immediately the phone started ringing. And, uh, and first of all, you know, is, is it a hoax? You know, what's going on? It's just, it's just people are curious. And, um, but there was very legitimate people. 
It's legit. The property owner has a conditional agreement already to give the home to a new owner in the Salmon Arm area. They plan to live in the century-old house. If that falls through, though, there are backup offers. The current owner says the George Street home was built in 1909. It has three bedrooms and a nice porch. There has also been interest in some of the historic property's details. Somebody wanted to buy the front door. We're not going to sell it piece by piece. I don't know what's special about the front door. And the siding on the building, you can't get the siding anymore, so somebody would have taken down all the siding. The diner next door, which dates back to the 1950s, is expected to be torn down. That will make it easier to move the house and leave the property available for redevelopment. Amazing stuff. All right, Squires here with a look ahead to sports. That diner looks familiar. I think I drove by that last year. No doubt. On vacation up there. Okay, yep. um, so we're going to talk about the, uh, the Whitecaps are playing tomorrow in Portland, but uh, the one thing we have noticed here this year, we've talked about this earlier, is all these development players that seem to be coming up to the main team. If you're not going to spend a ton of money, then you're going to have to develop players, and the Whitecaps seem to be doing that. Homegrown talent, right? Okay, we'll hear more about that coming up. Also tonight, satellite debris. It's happy hour. <laughs> so, you want a free Coca-Cola. Better to grow talent than pay for it, right? Well, I think a little of both would be nice. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Whitecaps fans would feel If the Whitecaps had a big-name player in here, I think they'd sell a few more seats. That's mm. another issue they have right now, but uh, they're on the road this weekend. They will be down in Portland tomorrow night, and Vancouver is unbeaten in its last eight MLS games. They got three goals last week against Minnesota, which was a bit out of character for this team in a good way. Actually, they beat Portland just over a month ago, one nothing. But uh, this week, they're not going to have striker Brian White, who got hurt in the game against Minnesota after scoring two goals. But Sergio Cordova will be healthy, they say, and might start this game and play at least a half. He's been out since that injury right there, a hamstring problem against the LA Galaxy back on March 18th. Remember, he was the big off-season get for Vancouver, but he hasn't played all that much because of injuries. Now, we have been talking this season about some of the young players who have been helping the Whitecaps' main team, players that were either drafted by Vancouver or have been brought up through their system. Now, if you aren't going to go out and spend a big dollar on a big designated player, then building your own is the best way to compensate. Just steps from the Whitecaps' first team training session at UBC, Ricardo Clark is leading the WFC2 side, preparing the next potential call-up. Levante Johnson made the most of his opportunity, coming off the bench to score against York in the Canadian Championship quarterfinal on Wednesday. Tries to go around the corner, Johnson! Seeing that, I think for me personally, it's inspiring. And for the other guys as well, I train with them, they see that, they're like, well, it's, it's possible. Seeing is believing, and that's part of the recipe for success in the Whitecaps development structure. To prove to our young prospects, to prove to the players that are in the development pyramid that they get a chance. 
The connection between teams within the Whitecaps organization is something Coach Vanny Sarcini worked on when he was given the role of Director of Methodology at the end of 2020 before taking over as interim coach in 2021. I sat down and we created this methodology that relied a lot on uh, putting the tactics first. The attention to detail is carried from the youth teams in the League One BC side to WFC2 and the first team. But each team has the freedom to play their own style and formation. I actually don't like the club where you have to play with the same system, with the same way from the first team to the U15 because the U15, when we'll be in the first team, we'll probably play a different system, there will be a different coach and soccer will be different. Gloria Amanda first joined the Whitecaps as a 15-year-old before enjoying a college career at Oregon State where he earned the Mac Herman Trophy as the top NCAA player in 2020. After a brief stint in Austria, he's back with the Whitecaps and sees the benefits to the current setup. And now, like when we train, we train at the same time. When we're, we're finished early, we get the chance to see the first team train. We're seeing the little details that, that they bring on every day and players were inspired by that. So last year was honestly my first year with any professional minutes. So uh, instead of just jumping straight to MLS, you know, I was able to slowly build uh, uh, some momentum, you know, train with the first team and playing an MLS Next Pro. Last season, the Whitecaps led the league in short-term call-ups and they just might do it again, especially if the prospects keep producing. At the end of the day, it's football. When you get those opportunities, as a player, you're happy, obviously. You're willing, you want to you prove yourself that you can do it. So it's exciting. The Canucks' JT Miller will try to qualify for the U.S. Open Golf Tournament, starting with a local event down in Los Angeles, which will begin on June 15th. He actually tried this last year, but he didn't make it. He shot 77. Good score, but not good enough to move on and make the U.S. Open. He is a good golfer because he has the skill. He's also a good golfer because the Canucks never make the playoffs. And he has more time to practice and play. Uh, Milan Lucic is playing for Team Canada at the World Hockey Championships. And they started today against Latvia. And this game was in Riga, so it was a full house. They were cheering for Latvia, but unfortunately they watched their team get beat 6-0. Lawson Krauss with a goal there. After it was 2-0, Latvia made a goaltending switch and they went to Artur Silovs of the Abbotsford Canucks. He went in the game and allowed four. Mackenzie Wieger here on the power play. He was the best player Canada had. Of course, Wieger of the Calgary Flames. That made it 3-0. And Sammy Blaze puts a goal that Silovs would wish never happened to him. It's from behind the net in the corner. It hits Silovs and goes in. You never want to have that happen, but especially in front of your home country. 6-0 the final. Canada's next game against Slovenia on... Sunday at the World Hockey Championships. Okay, yesterday the NFL released its schedule for this year, and as we told you in a story a couple of years ago, a local Vancouver company, Optimal Planning Solutions, plays a big part in making the NFL's schedule. Now, the Seattle Seahawks schedule is considered to be the 12th toughest in the league for this year. Not the toughest, obviously, but it's not going to be a cakewalk. Here is the home portion of the Seahawks season. It begins against the Rams on September 10th, you have a visit from Carolina. Obviously, the divisional opponents always show up, but Cleveland will be there. The Commanders, that'll be a big game December 17th against Philadelphia. Pittsburgh comes in on December 31st. And right now in Vegas, the over-under on how many games the Seahawks will win this season, eight and a half. Last year, they won nine. There you go. All right. Thanks very much, Squire. We've got more, including satellite debris next.
Jordan Armstrong is here now with a preview of a couple of the stories they're working on for Global News at 11. Jordan. And Chris, a warning to anyone who ate at the McDonald's at Boundary and Lougheed in Vancouver, Vancouver-Burnaby border, I should say. Coastal Health is out with a hepatitis A alert spanning multiple dates in April and May. These are some of the symptoms on your screen. We've posted the dates involved here on our website. Hep A is a highly contagious liver infection. We'll have full details at 11. Plus, the homicide team has just identified the body found in Surrey the other day. What we know about the victim tonight. Chris? All right. Thanks very much for that, Jordan. And we'll end the week on a high note here with Squire and Satellite Debris. Yes, so in this first segment, uh, we'll have a Coca-Cola commercial from South Africa, but also two commercials featuring Slash. And one of them will be from a couple of years ago when the great Betty White was still around. Oh, nice. <laughs> Coca-Cola? Oh, it's happy hour. <laughs> so, you want a free Coca-Cola, but you have to drink it here. With no fees or minimums and no overdraft fees, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. <laughs> Even easier than this. Stop. You're in. Oh, cool. Yep, even easier than that. With no fees or minimums and no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? You can tell which one is male or female by the dark pads on their fingers. Really? That's cool. <laughs> Come see living amphibians, invertebrates, and reptiles alive in L.A. Okay, <laughs> this one is an old ad, and somebody reminded me of this. Now, I found it. It's from way back when there was no HD, so it's going to be a little murky. We tried to clean it up as best as possible, but it's a good one from Geico. Here we go. Which into Geico really save you 15% or more on car insurance? Do woodchucks chuck wood? <laughs> Hey, you dang woodchucks! Quit chucking my wood! Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. <laughs> I love that one. Imagine pitching that idea in the story meeting. <laughs> Actually, that might work. You know that woodchuck chucking wood thing? I got an idea yeah. about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, so this last one is from... Uh, KFC, remember that story we did the other day about the, the two filmmakers using their hands and their fingers? Oh, yeah, yeah. This is, this is kind of like that. Here All right. C presents a sad story. The story of the little one. Think how he feels next to his big brothers with their official cool names. The thumb, the like button before the like button, the index finger, the one that shows the way, the middle finger. The bad boy, the ring finger, the family man, 
he is just the little one, the army knife. Hey, little one, drive that screw. Hey, little one, remove my sleep. Hey, little one, it's toothpick time. Hey, little one, my ear needs cleaning. And of course, he's never invited to parties. But KFC's gonna change all that, because in order to grab a piece of KFC chicken, you'll need all five fingers. And of course, afterwards, you'll lick them all. And yes, even the little one. Because at KFC, we are for the little one, and for every single finger, finger licking good. I don't know. We might have, we might have needed a disclaimer before. Yeah, I hope you ate your. I hope you had what, dinner. What? 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 Like <laughs> Disturbing this bit, content. This bit with the finger in the ear. <laughs> the ear. It one. is true, though. You usually use that one. It, it was. There was nothing factually incorrect about that. <laughs> no, it was not. Not at all. Uh, okay. Hot weekend ahead of us. Mother's Day's ahead of us. Uh, what are we expecting in the weather here, Yvonne? Temperatures will be soaring. Uh, Mother's Day will be a hot one. We've got areas away from the water up to 34 degrees. It'll take us into early next week as well. So be prepared, stay hydrated, grab the sunscreen. And for Mother's Day, yes, plenty of sunshine. We'll still hang on to that in Tuesday, Wednesday. So for making plans in the coming days, we'll continue to track that heat 10 and up to 15 degrees above the average. And then those overnight lows anywhere between 12 and up to 15 degrees. So the heat is on. It's going to feel like summer this weekend. Happy birthday to my beautiful sister Allie and happy Mother's Day to mom and all the women out there who are rock stars for performing that role. Moms are amazing. Have a great weekend, everybody.